A racist massacre in Buffalo, New York, ends with 13 people shot, 11 of them black. A new women's movement takes the streets in hundreds of cities. A Palestinian-American journalist was assassinated by Israeli forces with no response from the U.S. government. In another dramatic NATO escalation, Finland and Sweden are set to join NATO and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's program of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's May 17th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash Breakthrough News. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing and register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which will be held this coming Wednesday, May 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. This month, we'll be focusing on questions from supporters on Patreon. So subscribe now and send questions for Brian to answer during the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion as well. I'm Nicole Rousseau, here with Esther Ivarim and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start? Well, I want to start with the horrific massacre, racist massacre in Buffalo, New York, in a black community in Buffalo, by a self-identified fascist Again, someone who just came in and mercilessly killed so many people. I think there are 10 dead. Again, weirdly, the police did not shoot the shooter. They carried out de-escalation tactics. I was thinking Esther Tamir Rice, 12 years old. When the police arrived, he had a toy gun in his hand, a toy gun, and they shot him within two seconds, 12-year-old boy in Cleveland. I'm thinking of Dylan Roof, who carried out the massacre of black churchgoers in South Carolina. Remember there, the police didn't take him down. They arrested him. He was arrested peacefully. They actually took him to Burger King because he said he was hungry. I guess he was hungry after the massacre. He's an unrepentant, racist, fascist. Also, Nicole, I mean, I think we have some audio tape from the police Again, they carried out de-escalation tactics with him after he had shot 13 people, 10 of whom were dead. Anyway, let's play this audio clip. I want to get both of your reactions. It's like an amazing, horrific event. It's also obviously racist because the shooter is saying that he's an adherent to replacement theory. We're going to talk about that. Remember in Charlottesville when the fascists marched in Charlottesville and there was a very strong anti-fascist response to them. They were chanting, Jews will not replace us. We'll talk about replacement theory, again, being promoted not only by the fascists in the streets with guns, but also by Tucker Carlson, 
on Fox News. But anyway, Nicole, do we have that audio? Yeah, we've got two clips from the press conference over the weekend by Buffalo officials. You'll hear the Buffalo police commissioner speaking. And this first one, he's just describing, this is his first statement. He's just describing what happened at the top supermarket where Peyton Gendron killed, shot and killed 10 people and wounded three others. Uh, the first 911 call came in at uh, 2.30 p.m. yesterday. Our uh, patrol officers were on scene at 2.31, according to our CAD yesterday. The officers immediately engaged the subject. Um, as it was said, he put the gun underneath his chin, and our officers um, very courageously used every de-escalation tactic that they could. They talked him down. Um, it was a, you know, a, a pretty uh, one-sided fight there with the, uh, with the armor that he had, and they were able to safely take him into custody with no further shots being fired. It was a, a, just a tremendous act of bravery. So the story was about the bravery of the police who, after this man shot 13 people and had a weapon, they de-escalated, Esther. They were very, very brave. In listening to the coverage of this horrific massacre on Sunday, I was actually shocked at how quickly the coverage pivoted away from the killing, the murder of these people in Buffalo to the police and how brave they were. If the massacre was covered at all, you know, I normally check in on CNN because they are this, the worldwide leader in news in the corporate media. So I was really shocked to see this massacre get very little coverage in the standard Sunday shows that people are listening to or watching to know what the big stories are for the weekend. And aside from this poor coverage, what I did hear, I was really surprised at how quickly the police became the story about how brave they were, about, you know, just linking it to the whole policing in general, because President Biden was addressing a gathering of police officers when he commented on this tragedy on Saturday. And he also pivoted very quickly to talk about how important police officers are, how brave they are. And really, I was just really shocked at how the white supremacist nature of this massacre was not being talked about. But we know that's because these corporate politicians are finding themselves in a real quandary because we are supporting, you know, white supremacists, neo-Nazis in Ukraine. And while they still claim that this is not true, right? I'm still hearing commentators talk about how, oh, no, that's not true. That's Russian propaganda. There are no neo-Nazis in Ukraine. There are no Nazis. We're not supporting Nazis. We're not arming Nazis. But you have at the same situation, this young man who carried out this massacre wearing Azov battalion symbols, the same symbols that they're wearing in Ukraine. So maybe that's why people were staying away from it. But I was just really shocked at how people were really holding up the police and talking about the police as opposed to the victims and the massacre and the anguish and tragedy and trauma in this community. I want to play the second clip from the press conference. Again, this is still the police commissioner speaking in Buffalo. He's answering a question from a reporter, asked him, well, there are some who are saying that if the shooter had been black, he wouldn't have made it out alive, that the de-escalation would not have been used, and that there was no way after shooting 10 people, 13 people, and killing 10, that he would have made it out alive. So let's play that clip, and we'll hear what the police commissioner says. Any opportunity that we have, and that's what we teach to de-escalate a situation, we are not looking to shoot anyone. 
this individual at the time put the gun to his own chin, not pointed towards the officers. The shooting had stopped at that point, and uh, the officers moved in very quickly to de-escalate. Um, had the, had the, the, the need come into play where they were forced to uh, take deadly physical force, then they would have acted on that. Just remember that the police in the United States have a shield. They have a, not a literal shield, but they have a shield for all criminal prosecution. When they kill unarmed people, and they kill unarmed people all the time, all they have to say is that I felt that my life was in jeopardy. Now, Philando Castile and his car, they felt their life was in jeopardy. You can go through and list the names of 100 men, 100 young black men who have been murdered by the cops. And in each and every instance, even though they didn't have a gun, the police said, I felt my life was in danger. And thus, it's considered a justifiable homicide. Here you have a man dressed in body armor. He's just shot 13 people. He's got a gun. He's an active shooter. And the police, unlike all of those other instances where they say their life is in danger and then just blow the person away, even if they don't have a weapon, now they're saying, well, we've been trained to carry out de-escalation tactics. This is so obviously another example of the racism of the police department and a racism of the media. You know, if you watch the media coverage as Esther did of CNN, you couldn't but come to the conclusion that from the point of view of the media in the United States, I mean, the corporate capitalist owned media, black lives actually don't matter. Black lives actually don't matter because none of the stories were about the lives of the people who were killed, about their family members. Yes, in Buffalo, New York, that coverage exists. But nationwide, no, the story is about a mentally ill, young man, troubled, a lone gunman, somehow subscribing to fringe theories without noticing or making at the very center of this that there is a rising tide of racist violence going on in the country that is being generated and promoted by a climate that says that there is such a thing as white grievance. Somehow white people will be offended by telling the story of this country, which is a story of white supremacy, the story of the enslavement of African people. Like this whole idea that white people have a beef and let's try to understand what replacement theory is. Like that would be like sort of saying, let's try to get to the bottom of why Hitler wanted to exterminate Jews. Like, no, people don't do that. This is, again, another reflection of the profound racism that's everywhere in American society. Brian, I mean, where were the de-escalation tactics in any of the other shootings that you just named? You know, Esther, you were saying before we started recording the show, you know, when we're listening to this clip and 911 is called at 2.30 and the ambulance and police and services arrive at 2.31 and you said, wow, I wish Tamir Rice would have gotten help like that. Like, I wish the ambulance would have arrived one minute later. I wish in Mike Brown's case, who laid on the pavement after being shot and killed by the police and he laid there for four hours. Why weren't services coming to help there? Same with George Floyd. I mean, all of these situations, where are the de-escalation tactics there? Just a few, I think a, a year or maybe two years ago, a young man here in Washington, D.C. was killed, Antoine Gilmore. He was asleep in his car and police surrounded the vehicle and shot into it. They say he had a gun in his waistband. We don't know that, but even if he did, he was asleep. So the guy here in Buffalo had actually already shot 13 people. 
But still, the de-escalation tactics are used, and he makes it out alive. And also, remember, one of the most egregious incidents of violence against protesters during the 2020 was in Buffalo, when they knocked down 75-year-old Martin Gugino. He was out protesting with Black Lives Matter protesters. He was an elderly white man, but... They felt that they could do nothing else but push this elderly man down to the ground. There was no de-escalation there, and they they had to. They had to. All the cops were let off. They said they had to push him down. They couldn't walk around him. And people just have to watch that video. They There's two columns of cops. They come up. There's this one older white man, 75 years old, who's there against racism. They push him flat over. He hits his, the back of his head on the cement. He's lying there in a pool of blood from his head, from a head wound. And again, the police are were let off exactly uh, in, the, in the legal case that was, the civil case that was brought against them. This is Buffalo. And when I listened to many of the Buffalo residents interview, when they did take the time to interview the actual people as opposed to politicians over the weekend, they talked about, you know, nothing's changed since George Floyd was murdered. They're still killing us. We are still dealing with the same, you know, racist treatment, the systemic racism, the segregation segregation in Buffalo, the marginalization of the same community where this one grocery store was the only grocery store, you know, which was really symbolic of the just the marginalization of the community. Nicole, let's go over some of the other recent events. There was Charlottesville. There was the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting, the Walmart massacre in El Paso. Let's go over some of this history. Yeah, Brian, there have been a slew of these disgusting massacres and mass shootings that have this as the motivation. And in 2015, people will remember Dylan Roof was invited in to come in and pray in the Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And then towards the end of the service, he opened fire and killed nine people. This was in a black church with predominantly black parishioners. And then in 2017, in the Charlottesville, quote unquote, Unite the Right rally, White supremacists rallied together, and one of them drove his car into counter-protesters, killing Heather Heyer and injuring dozens more. At that rally, they chanted, you will not replace us, and Jews will not replace us, which are clearly chants referencing the great replacement theory that you just talked about. 2018, in Pittsburgh, at the synagogue, a man shot and killed 11 people and wounded six. He had written that a Jewish organization that had supported Central American migrant caravans, quote, likes to bring invaders in that kill our people. Screw your people. I'm going in, unquote. I want to stop you right there, Nicole, before you go on, because, you know, you can say this is a person, an individual who carried out that massacre. But that was the main theme of the Trump administration, that the migrants were this great invading horde. And then you have people like Tucker Carlson and other racists who are promoting this replacement theory, like immigrants from Latin America are going to replace white people. Africans or black Americans are replacing white people at the job. Asian Americans are replacing us. It's this grievance, this great expression of grievance. And it's not simply individuals. There's a large section of the right wing in America using the mass media to create a climate where these ideas are considered not just okay, but completely valid. They're validating these theories. So then, yes, the massacres can be attributed to individuals, but if you decontextualize 
the massacres, from the political climate, you're missing the big picture. Brian, I think that's such an important point because these are clearly happening so frequently. People don't just come up with these insane ideas out of thin air, you know, on their own. So 2015, Dylan Roof, 2017, Charlottesville Unite the Right, 2018, the Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting. And then in 2019, another shooter shot and killed 23 shoppers at a Walmart in El Paso. He told police that he had sought to kill Mexicans and his manifesto referenced a, quote, cultural and ethnic replacement, unquote, and a, quote, Hispanic invasion. And then this past weekend in Buffalo, a white shooter specifically targeted a black neighborhood of Buffalo, killed 10 and injured three more. He wrote online that the victims he targeted were trying to, quote, ethnically replace my own people. And I mean, listen to all these words. These are some of the same words, the same phrases, and they're clearly part of the same theory. They're also part of the, frankly, a lot of the mainstream right wing culture and media and obviously more fringe as well. But they are becoming more and more mainstream. And also, Nicole, there's this real danger of kind of normalizing these massacres, because even when you have that list, we're forgetting the 2012 massacre of Sikhs in Wisconsin and the fact that this killer in Buffalo referenced the massacre in Christchurch, New Zealand, and where Muslims were targeted. And just thinking about that situation with the Sikhs and another one in Christchurch, there was a whole period here where Muslims were being demonized and politically targeted. And then these murderers go after those people as well. So I wanted to definitely just add that to make sure we didn't forget about those people massacred in those other two instances. Because we are also talking about the resurgent women's movement and abortion rights, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, listening to all this discussion about great replacement, that it also has deep connections to the pro-choice movement and the right for abortion in this country, because the drive to limit the ability of white women to get an abortion was connected to the fear that enslaved and then emancipated black people in this country would outnumber white people at some point. So you have the same movement happening, the same roots of the great replacement theory happening at the same time. White women are targeted for, you know, restrictions on their ability to have a child or to have an abortion. And if you bring it up to the day, the language that people like Tucker Carlson uses is the kind of mainstream version of this kind of racist violence that we saw in Buffalo. And when I listen to the like clips of him, I think it's so interesting because you can hear him basically describing white people almost as the indigenous people of the United States, you know, and everybody else coming in are kind of, you know, the replacement to this indigenous population. I know we have two clips. And so let's just hear him talk about these two clips are from Media Matters, kind of a Fox Watch, Fox News Watch. And these are two clips of Tucker Carlson talking about the Great Replacement. An unrelenting stream of immigration. But why? Well, Joe Biden just said it, to change the racial mix of the country. That's the reason, to reduce the political power of people whose ancestors lived here and dramatically increase the proportion of Americans newly arrived from the third world. And then Biden went further. He said that non-white DNA is the, quote, source of our strength. Imagine saying that. This is the language of eugenics. It's horrifying. But there's a reason Biden said it. In political terms, this policy is called the Great Replacement, the replacement of legacy Americans with more obedient people from faraway countries. 
So he's talking about legacy. Legacy Americans. Legacy Americans. And it's just so, you know, the fact that he uses this type of really ignorant, ahistorical language is just, I don't know, it just really tells the truth. It tells the full scope of this movement that this young man, this murderer in Buffalo is following. So, you know, of course, he doesn't talk about the fact that White people are not the indigenous people. They're not the legacy people. The legacy people in the United States were murdered. You know, the, I don't know, millions of Native Americans here were, not only does he not talk about the fact that these people have been removed through a course of genocide, but he doesn't also deal with the fact that all those people in Mexico or El Salvador, Honduras, they're the indigenous people of this world. And so they, it's just... The level of ignorance is really laughable, except that it's very, it leads to murders like this, these types of massacres, because people are listening to people like Tucker Carlson on Fox News. I want to also remind everyone that, you know, just a little more than two years ago, 35 million people came into the streets after George Floyd. So it was black people, Latino people, white people, Asian Americans, indigenous people, Arab Americans, South Asians, people of all ethnicities, nationalities marched together against racism. And at that time, these same white racist militia type forces started to mobilize to come to bring weapons to confront the protests. And you had this great divide in the country. The reason I'm mentioning it is that when the cities and the urban areas and the centers even of small towns, which were the places where the uprising against racism took place, it shows that the majority sentiment in the country, and in fact, the most powerful parts of the population, are against racism, are standing together against this kind of racist violence. But you have the political climate fostered by the ruling class and its institutions like the media, that give added weight to the voices of the right wing, give added voices to the racists. When I listen to NPR or CNN, they talk about the Democratic Party as the left. So there's the right and the left. So it's these racists, these fascists, you know, the right wing of the Republican Party. And then presumably there's the left, which is the Democratic Party. But when you look at the nature of what's going on, it wasn't the Democratic Party that called the 35 million people out into the streets in 2020. I mean, we were in the streets right here in Washington, D.C. Muriel Bowser declared a curfew against the protest the same day that Trump was announcing that the military will be used against urban areas and that the mayors and governors had to control the battle space, which was, of course, the cities of this country. So we have a battle going on. It's a battle for ideas. It's a battle in the streets. It's a battle of all types between anti-racist forces that are rooted in a vision of progress, in a vision of fighting against the injustice of a system that hurts working class people of all races and ethnicities. And on the other side are these goons, are these stooges for the capitalists, these right-wingers, and their own strength in the country is magnified And again, when violent acts are carried out like they were against the black community in Buffalo, New York, the media attention is all on the racist cops in Buffalo or all on the the supposed individual problems of the shooter. 
rather than building solidarity with the black community, which in this case was victimized again in Western New York. Anyway, I really want to emphasize this for context. Our side, the side of progress, is strong, but it's only strong when we're mobilized, when we're in the streets, in motion, when you can feel the energy and the power of the people. Brian, this is such an important story, and I know we'll continue to follow it and keep coming back to it. We're going to move to Ukraine, which is, of course, a huge and ongoing story in a few minutes. But before we do, there's a couple of really important things we want to get to. First, Brian, let's talk about the assassination of Palestinian-American Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akleh. Right. Another journalist. uh, She had a, a press jacket on. She had a helmet on. An Israeli sniper still succeeded at executing her in cold blood. Later tonight in Washington, D.C., at the National Press Club, there will be a candlelight vigil organized by people from the Palestinian and Arab American community. That's at the National Press Club on 14th and and F Street. Yeah, the Israeli government, funded by the United States, continues to execute journalists. And again, it's a big yawn in the United States media, even though she's a journalist, an accredited journalist, in a press flak jacket and with a helmet and doing nothing but covering the story, the snipers, the Israeli snipers just take her out. I mean, is this not a war crime? Is this not a crime against humanity? Is this not a violation of the Geneva Convention? Is this not a violation of international law? The answer to all of those questions is yes. And everybody knows the answer is yes. And where is the clamor? Where is the outpouring from the members of the U.S. Congress, Democrats or Republicans, conservative or liberals? Just a big old yawn because the Israelis have been given a blank check. The Israeli racist apartheid regime functions as an extension of U.S. imperial power and as such gets a blank check. Again, we have to stand with Julian Assange, who we'll talk about a little bit later, We'll have to talk about Shireen and all of the other journalists who have been targeted by state repression, and in this case, just cold-blooded murder by the Israeli military. And if we remember, the the U.S. killed a journalist in Iraq, at least one I'm just thinking about, more than one journalist during the, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. So it's almost as if, especially these journalists, if they are Middle Eastern, if they're Arab, they aren't counted. They aren't counted and they're they're certainly their lives aren't counted. And just one more note, Breakthrough News had an excellent political cartoon about this. The New York Times had a headline the day it happened. Breaking news. Al Jazeera said one of its journalists was killed in the West Bank city of Jenin during clashes between Israeli forces and Palestinian gunmen. Yeah. So the New York Times is complicit. When you say she was killed during clashes rather than saying Israeli snipers executed her. All right, let's go on. Huge demonstration here in Washington, D.C., but demonstrations, Nicole, all over the country, big cities, medium-sized cities, small towns, college campuses, you know, it's everywhere. A new generation of young women and girls are leading the way. They're not the only ones. It's people all over, all through society are coming together, but it's young militant, now militant or becoming more and more militant women and girls who are leading the way because the U.S. government is basically saying to women in the United States, you don't have control over your body. We, the state, will have control over your body. And people are chanting, not the church, 
not, not the, the state. state. Only we will control our fate. And obviously that's the issue. This is a fundamental issue of democracy and human rights. It is. And those are the messages we heard over the weekend in D.C., where 50,000 people came out in D.C. and gathered at the Washington Monument and then marched to the Supreme Court. And people on the megaphones and in the streets were saying that chant, as well as discussing and talking about the nine unelected judges who, despite being unelected and despite being nine people, get to make at this moment in this society decisions for millions of people including the 166 million women in this country. And, you know, talking about how it's really this war on women by the Supreme Court, but also Congress, because, you know, Congress took a vote last week, as well as in February, on the Women's Health Protection Act, which would give women the right to abortion on the federal level. But they voted just to get people on the record, and they quite literally said that. So unsurprisingly, when, you know, you're not actually pushing to get something passed, well, it didn't pass. And, you know, both houses in Congress, as well as the presidency, are under Democratic Party control. But the party, I guess, was unwilling to let this pass, to let these basic rights pass. And you could really hear the frustration and anger in the streets this weekend. I was speaking recently with a high school teacher in Richmond, Virginia, and she was telling me that the students have been planning walkouts, calling press, and, you know, getting the demands out there that they're not willing to go back, that they're not willing to not have this right. And she talked about how, you know, this generation, this younger generation that's coming up right now, really didn't think this would happen. Like, not only did they not live through a pre-Roe v. Wade period when abortions were fully illegal everywhere, but even in this generation who lives in places that might have pretty much, you know, easier access to abortion— really didn't think this would happen, that that Congress and the Supreme Court would roll things quite this far back. And, you know, clearly that's possible unless we demand our rights. And I think also a younger generation has been influenced by the popularization of the Margaret Atwood novel, The Handmaid's Tale. I saw a few signs Saturday saying, man, this episode of The Handmaid's Tale really sucks, you know, but Anyway, this novel and then the the hit series on Hulu kind of paints the picture of this dystopian future United States, which, you know, when young people see something like this happen, it doesn't seem like that far away. Right. Because the first step is telling women that you do not have a right to an abortion. So in this dystopian future, women have lost all control over their lives, basically, and definitely their reproductive lives. And there's no reproductive justice. You know, women are basically enslaved to bear children for the elite, you know, who are childless or whatever. So it's I think that that has a big part of that popular culture and the popularity of that and those ideas about how the state can uh, become oppressive and basically interrupt your rights over your own body has had a big impact. One of the things, of course, is that for millions of women, they've already essentially lost the right to certainly easy access to abortion or affordable abortion or safe abortion. The restrictions in so many states, I mean, in more and more, hundreds and hundreds more being imposed all the time, you know, chipping away at the essential right of women and for no good cause. It's not really for health. It's it's really purely ideological on the part of these male-dominated legislatures. And the fact that Nancy Pelosi 
is going around campaigning for Henry Cuellar, for instance, in Texas, who is anti-abortion. And Nancy Pelosi says, well, abortion shouldn't be a litmus test for Democratic candidates. That's the Democratic Party's actual position. It's not really a priority. But, you know, this is not really a struggle, basically, between politically right-wing people and people who are considered liberal. Working-class women, poor women who are voting Republican in different states, believe that they should have the right to terminate an unwanted pregnancy. This is a way the Democrats could very easily reach across into a section of the people who are voting for the Republican Party. Unless you're religiously motivated, for instance, you know, you're a very observant Catholic, and most Catholics support abortion rights in the United States, but let's say you're part of that, unless you're part of that Catholic minority in the United States that's just theologically opposed to abortion, women want to be able, and they want their daughters to be able to have abortions for unwanted pregnancies. It shouldn't be like a right-left sort of, or let's say we're not using right-left anymore when it comes to Democrats and Republicans. It shouldn't be like the Democrats could actually do a great deal of recruitment if they would actually stand up for abortion rights. But the fact of the matter is they don't care. And again, going back to that 2009-2010 term, 59 senators in the Senate were Democrats. The 60th senator was an independent voting with the Democratic caucus. They had a huge majority in the House of Representatives. Obama was hugely popular in 2009. They could have voted for whatever they wanted to. They could have certainly passed under those terms, even with the filibuster, they could have passed abortion rights as the law of the land, and they chose not to. In fact, they refused to. When you say they don't care, I think that's true, but I think it's more than that. This is an issue that the Democratic Party wants to continue using to try to make people go vote. I mean, this is a manipulation tactic is what it feels like to me. This is something that the party and many members of the party have been talking about for as long as I've been alive as a reason to go vote for members of this party establishment when, you know, they've, again, had control of Congress and the presidency right now, but had even more control, you know, in past years during the Obama administration. And they could have passed this, but they didn't. It seems like the party wants to have this issue, which is so important to so many people, as this hook to get people to go vote for them. And, you know, sometimes it's specifically about abortion rights and it's called that and it's named that and that's out there. And sometimes in more recent years, it's been, well, if you don't go out and vote, if you vote Republican or if you just don't vote at all, the Republican Party is going to be able to install new judges into the Supreme Court. And, you know, worst case scenario, Roe v. Wade will get overturned. Well, you know, they've been promising that for years and look what's happening. And, you know, so I just think it's so clear that this is like a really a manipulation of voters. And by the way, I want to remind Esther, you will probably remember this being in D.C. at the time. But when Obama was president and there was a budget, what was called sequestration, and there was a budget impasse and John Boehner was the Speaker of the House and Obama couldn't get like a compromise, he finally came in at the time of the compromise and Obama says to Boehner behind closed doors, but this got reported out, he said, I'll give you abortion in D.C. Now, what that meant mm. was that the Democrats, Obama would give the Republicans the end 
of the funding, federal funding that the District of Columbia used for impoverished women who could not otherwise access abortion. So the Hyde Amendment, the federal Hyde Amendment that became law said that federal funds can't be used to finance abortion. In D.C., the council here said, but in D.C., poor women who are in need will be able to get federal funding for abortion. And Obama says, I'll give you abortion in D.C. And that's what they did. So obviously abortion, in this case, for working class and poor women, and really for the African-American women in the district, the poorer parts of the African-American population, Obama was, quote, giving their rights away to Boehner as part of a negotiated. So that means the Democrats also always see the abortion rights as a bargaining chip and nothing more. Abortion rights activists are increasingly feeling betrayed and not listened to, just like student loan advocates, just like the young climate activists, all the people who came out to support Biden, even though he wasn't their first choice the last time, they've seen promise after promise after promise broken on all of these issues. And you can just add abortion rights to that long list. Esther, that's such a good example. And another proof point, because Biden could do so much on student debt on his own without Congress. So, you know, if you're out here trying to say, well, gosh, golly, Joe Manchin voted against the Women's Health Protection Act last week, so he's the problem. But, you know, nobody else can get elected in West Virginia. Too bad. Well, first of all, on that specific argument, the majority of West Virginians support Roe v. Wade, first of all. And second of all, you know, nobody likes him there. Stop propping him up. Like, he's not representing the people there. And a lot of them are deeply aware of that. But you know, more importantly on this broader argument, let's say we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Sure. All of that's true. Let's say Joe Manchin, sure, he's the problem, which I don't agree with, but let's just give you the benefit of the doubt. Well, there's no Joe Manchin standing in the way of Biden wiping out all student debt. He can do that by executive action and he promised to, but he hasn't. So wait, it's like there's always an excuse on every campaign promise and every issue that they dangle over our heads. Like you have to vote for me or else you'll never get this thing. Well, We're never going to get it with Democrats in office either. We have to fight back. Let's go on to the next story. Yes, let's go on to the next story. Esther, before we move to the ongoing conversation about Ukraine, let's go over some of the most recent COVID updates. Well, I have two updates that I found pretty appalling, actually. It's good we're going to talk about Ukraine because even some of these, you know, corporate politicians are starting to speak out, probably in reaction to hearing from people in their base who they're supposed to represent about the hypocrisy or insanity of sending what is now $40 billion to Ukraine, while at the same time, we don't have the needed, what's needed here for working class people right here in this country. So the first story I saw was from Politico last Friday, and this is the lead. It says, just two months after the administration unveiled a nearly 100-page roadmap out of the crisis, doubts are growing about Congress's willingness to fund the nation's fight. They're talking about COVID. It has forced Biden officials to debate deep cuts to their COVID operation and game out ways to keep the federal effort afloat on a month to month basis. Among the sacrifices being weighed are limiting access to its next generation of vaccines to only the highest risk Americans, a rationing that would have been unthinkable just a year ago when the White House touted the development and widespread availability of vaccines as the clearest way out of the pandemic. So, 
as we've talked about on the show, Republicans have been holding up passage of about $10 billion in COVID funding, and they're kind of connecting it to whether Biden will change some of his policies about COVID policies on the border, something totally unrelated. But as a result, these funds aren't available, and we're talking about $10 billion that's needed here versus $40 billion that they're set to send to Ukraine. And the other issue is that this $10 billion wouldn't even really go as far as it needs to go, but it's being held up. The second story is that NBC News reported last week that Biden was planning to tell states to use their unused COVID funding to give to police departments, all right? And the advocates speaking out, outraged by this, talked about how public schools need ventilation repair. Schools need funding so that teachers, just like the substitute teachers protesting here in D.C. to have better wages, that schools need support right now in terms of staying open to have safe spaces for children. And that funding could easily be used for schools and other public needs rather than the police. So those are two updates on COVID. And I thought that the second issue in terms of Biden saying, you know, give this money to the police links back to our first story we covered in terms of Buffalo, because when he talked about this Buffalo massacre on Saturday, he was speaking to a group of police. And, you know, he also went out of his way to kind of praise the police in that horrific massacre, as opposed to talking about the victims. And the last thing I'll say about this is that this all could be very political because The Republicans are making a lot of hay leading up to the midterms and in the 2024 election about the rise in crime during the COVID and not relating it to the misery of people, the mental crises of people, the economic crises of the community, and instead making it a policing matter that we know police can't solve. Esther, those are really incredible points. And Just on that, when you look at the record of police, even though it says, you know, on their little cars, like protect and serve, we know that the only people they protect and serve are the ruling class in this country. Certainly not the people they shoot dead in the streets or in their own homes or the victims of crime that the police never investigate, never solve and certainly don't prevent. The gall of sending money that is deeply needed for schools, for health, for families is so disgusting. In another update on COVID, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the number of Americans who died from COVID hit 1 million yesterday, 1 million people dead. And we know that's an undercount, especially when you remember back to the beginning of the pandemic, all those bodies stacked up in trucks, at the morgues, in alleys, because so many people died so quickly and the government failed so miserably at preventing it. And New York Governor Cuomo at the time deliberately hid, we found out later, deliberately hid those numbers. The New York Times published over the weekend an analysis showing that if the U.S. had the same rate of death from COVID as Australia, at this time, instead of um, 1 million people having died from COVID, we'd have 900,000 of those people would have survived. We'd have 100,000 people dead, not 1 million. It just didn't have to be this way. Also, you know, just getting back from Cuba, that was a big difference in terms of how their public responded to the COVID crisis because they trusted their socialist medical infrastructure. And, you know, you have a doctors in every community. Cuba is only second behind one other country in terms of the rate of vaccination in the world. 
And there was a, they do have a vaccination regime there, but it was also about mask wearing and social distancing and public health measures like washing your hands. And so it just shows the difference between a system here that really was not a system at all. You know what I mean? It still is not, you know, we don't have any contact tracing. They're talking about rationing vaccines. People have to pay now for tests and you better not get sick, right? It's been made into a cultural phenomenon, whether you even buy into these basic ideas, like when you're young, get these life-saving vaccines from measles and mumps and all these things. But all of a sudden, this is a political issue. That is a really big difference between here and Cuba. Cuba is under this massive embargo. It's making everyday life so difficult. And yet the government prioritized making vaccines. Of course, Cuban people are going to take them. And also, you know, it's not a private pharmaceutical industry that's promoting medicines and vaccines in order to make profit. Like people are very understandably skeptical in a society where medical care is a commodity and some institutions are making lots and lots of money, lots and lots of very big profits by selling you anything. I mean, you just think of the drug overdoses from pain medications in the last few years. Obviously, the pharmaceutical companies shouldn't be trusted, can't be trusted. Well, in Cuba, there are no pharmaceutical companies. There's no industry where investors and capitalists are making money off of healthcare. It's publicly owned, it's state owned. The government, as you said, Esther, you go through the different neighborhoods, there's doctors and nurses who live amongst the people. The doctor is always in, so to speak, or the nurse is always in. You, can, you know the people, you trust the people. So obviously when the government in Cuba rolls out vaccines and they made five of their own vaccines, this little tiny island country that's completely blockaded, the people know that the government would only be doing it in order to keep people safe. There's no, there's no vaccine hesitancy. Well, there may be some. I don't want to say none. Maybe there's some. But not anything in comparison to what exists here in the United States. And again, like in Australia, you know, there was a movement against vaccines and against mask wearing. The anti-vaxxers here in the United States made a big deal about the Australian anti-vax movement the COVID denialist movement. But the reality is in Australia, in the main, in general, generally speaking, people were working together to follow these common sense health policy protocols, like wear a mask, get a vaccine if you can. You know, and that's why, that's why Australia's death rate is 10% what it is for the United States. I know the COVID denialists say, oh, well, there's some comorbidity yeah, or some other reason that people with COVID died. Okay, let's say your father or mother or grandmother or grandfather is 75 years old and more vulnerable because the comorbidity factor is that they're older and more frail. Does that make you feel less bad about the fact that they died when they got COVID? I mean, this kind of logic of the COVID denialists, like if you're obese, if you're old, if you have diabetes, as if you have other conditions that are part of living or part of living in class society, that somehow your death doesn't really matter and that it's a fake statistic. No, you wouldn't have died except for COVID. COVID came along and was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. So, right. Within that argument, 
they're also targeting black people, poor people, people of color who have you know higher rates of like diabetes and other comorbidities. So when I hear those arguments, I hear within them kind of a racist trope along with it. But I also wanted to say that, you know, these people in the United States who have been against masks, they've been against vaccines, they've kind of won in a way. Because if you come from a country like Cuba where you see people wearing masks, they've, they've gotten vaccinations, they're practicing social distancing, they have respect for what's needed. And you come back, even on the plane where, you know, a Trump judge just said that, you know, you don't have to wear a mask on the plane anymore. You can still be trying to do the right thing here. And the person right next to you is basically thumbing their nose at you and say, oh, you're a fool. I don't have to wear a mask. No, I, I just flew to Los Angeles to help out with the PSL Socialism Conference and then the summit, the People's Summit for Democracy. I, I got a middle seat because I got a late reservation on the window seat and on the aisle seat, both people were not wearing masks. It's a, you know, a six hour plane. And so you're sitting inches away. And again, one judge, yes, was the one who said the mask wearing mandate in airlines is unconstitutional, that the CDC overstepped its legal boundaries. But I didn't see the Biden administration racing into court to overturn it because I think Biden also wanted to not have this be an issue. They're perfectly happy to have a judge take responsibility for lifting the mask mandates. The reality is the United States government policy, having failed in all ways to stop COVID from spreading, has basically surrendered to COVID. So, right. look, we're going to live with COVID. We're not going to do another lockdown. Not that we're advocating a lockdown or school closings. I mean, they're very terrible, especially in a capitalist society. But they're basically saying, look, we're just going to live with whatever consequences. And, of course... For the people who are rich, they're not flying in a middle seat with maskless people on both sides of them. They are in private jets. And that goes for the people in the pharmaceutical companies, the health insurance companies, and also for the politicians. All right, we have to turn quickly to Ukraine. We just have a couple more stories, but I want to talk about what's new in Ukraine. Of course, last Wednesday, I had an excellent discussion that also was on Breakthrough News Wednesday night and then as a podcast Thursday morning with Ting's Chak. She was talking to us from Shanghai. She's with the Dongsheng News Collective, also a, a researcher at Tricontinental Institute. We talked about what China's view of the Ukraine war was. I encourage people who haven't either heard or watched that show to go ahead and listen to it. And we'll be returning to that theme on this Wednesday. But I want to say a few things about the Ukraine war. Obviously, this is a war that's a protracted war now. It's going to keep going. But Sweden formally asked for NATO inclusion on Monday, yesterday. Finland is doing the same. Sweden has had an official position of neutrality for 200 years. So this is a very, very big development. For Finland, if Finland should come into NATO... That means that NATO weaponry, including conventional and nuclear missiles, will be you know, a stone's throw away from St. Petersburg. Of course, Finland was part of the Russian Empire after the Russian Revolution and after the Bolsheviks came to power. The Bolsheviks supported the independence of Finland as an independent country. But again, it's right on the border of St. Petersburg. For Finland to come into NATO... Russia said it would take it very seriously, that it would take countermeasures. It also made it clear that 
Russia had no intention of taking military action in Finland as it did in Ukraine. But all of the signposts are there. We know very well what's going on. The U.S. you know, provoked the war. They insisted that NATO expansion go forward. They wanted Ukraine to be in NATO. They knew that Russia had said they're going to put their foot down. This was a red line. And the U.S. did not immediately return, urgently return to the negotiating table and come to some sort of an agreement with Russia because they precisely wanted what's happened to have happened because now all of Europe is coming into NATO and NATO is really should be understood as not a European-wide alliance. It's a U.S. Pentagon-driven military instrument. The Pentagon budget is $800 billion this year. All of the NATO countries combined, the other 29, are less than half of what the U.S. military budget is in any single year. So each of these 29 countries, their own military budget compared to the American military budget is tiny, is small in comparison. Of course, Russia's military budget is also small in comparison to the U.S. budget or to NATO's budget. Russia only spends a little more than $60 billion a year on military. And what we can see is the U.S. has accomplished a principal objective with their provocative decisions to push the war, to make sure that the war would happen, which is to now unite Europe under the U.S. leadership. We've talked a lot, and people on the left have been talking a lot in the last few years about the U.S. is an empire in decline, right? How many times have we heard that? Well, right now, right now, this declining empire just got stronger because the places where people were trying to break free from the empire, meaning Europe, and move or gravitate in the direction, say, of integration into Eurasia or to the Belt and Road Initiative, they're now firmly under the domination of this U.S. military alliance. So that's what makes the U.S. very, very happy. Also, all the talk is about vastly increasing the U.S. military budget, maybe doubling it over the next few years to $1.6 trillion. That's the official position of the Wall Street Journal, that the U.S. needs to double the military budget. And it's so great for American politicians because, frankly, if U.S. teenagers, 19-year-olds or people in their 20s were being killed or having their legs blown off or their eyes knocked out or their arms severed in a war with Russia. Right now, we'd have hundreds of thousands of people in Washington, D.C., protesting against the war. But if Ukrainians are dying, if Ukrainians are bleeding or Russians are dying and bleeding, then there's not going to be a massive anti-war movement. And everybody knows this calculation to be real. And so the U.S. is waging a proxy war against Russia. They've united Europe under the U.S. banner. The only thing that I think we need to say very loudly and very clearly is that while it looks like the U.S. is riding tall in the saddle, they're riding a horse that's poised to go directly into an even larger confrontation with an adversary who is determined not to lose. Russia is determined not to lose. And if the Americans are determined to win rather than to negotiate, and the Russians are determined not to lose, then at some point, something gives. And Russia and the United States are nuclear powers. Britain and France are also nuclear powers. 
And I believe that the real logic of the situation is going in the direction of escalation, meaning between nuclear powers. I've only read, interestingly, I've only read one or two articles from the voices within the U.S. political establishment that are counseling caution. Everyone else is like, yeah, this is great. Let's go for it. But there was an article in the Military Industrial Complex Trade Newsletter, a newsletter called Breaking Defense, which I subscribe to and read every day. And that newsletter has an op-ed from someone saying, wait, we need to find a way to have an end to this war because the logic of escalation is so very dangerous. I think, and I've been saying this over and over again in the last couple of weeks, Kurt Campbell, Jake Sullivan, Anthony Blinken, Victoria Newland, that whole cast of characters who were very strong inside the Obama administration, who were the principal architects, along with John McCain of the Maidan coup d'etat in 2014. These are rich, privileged people. They grew up in privilege. They don't have a sense of danger or, or a threat to them. So they're sort of, in a way, simple-minded. Like when you grow up in that level of privilege, there's a simple-mindedness that you always know you're going to succeed. And I think that's the arrogance and the hubris that sort of dominates American thinking, which is what led to Vietnam. It's what led to Iraq and then Iraq and led to Afghanistan and leads to all these disasters. This, this mentality, which is, yes, imperialism is a system. It's not a group of privileged individuals making stupid mistakes, but these are privileged individuals and they are making stupid mistakes in the context of an imperialist system. I think that's why things are so bad. It's an imperialist government and such a deeply unequal society. And so the people who are ruling are just incredibly wealthy. And like you say, simple-minded. They aren't used to things being hard, nor are they used to having things not turn out exactly the way that they want. No accountability. Exactly. I'm wondering, Brian, Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO seems like a very clear example of this being truly a new era in politics. Yes, I think so. But we don't know what the new era is called. We know that the era of post-Soviet globalization, whereby, say, Russia was integrated into the world economy, as was China. There was a kind of an integration of America's former adversaries into a world economy that the United States dominates. So the exchange was, we, the Americans, or the U.S. imperialist finance capital, monopoly capitalists, allow you to integrate into our world economy and in exchange, you go along with whatever our program is. The problem came about not because Russia wanted a confrontation with the United States. That's not what caused this. What caused this is that Russia is too big a, as a country to be simply a colonial or neocolonial puppet. It's too big. It's got too many weapons. Uh, it's the largest landmass country in the world. It stretches all the way from Europe all the way to the Pacific. And so if Russia gets back on its feet, as it started to under Putin after the decade of the 1990s, Russia is going to be a big power and it's not going to be a puppet. Where in the United States after World War II, when it revived the capitalist countries of Europe, allies and enemies alike, including Germany, the United States revived them as capitalist countries, revived their ruling classes, 
did not impose World War I or post-World War I type Versailles sanctions as the imperialists did on Germany that devastated Germany. The U.S. said to the European capitalists and to the Japanese capitalists, look, we're going to help revive you. Matter of fact, we'll finance your revival. We'll give you access to the world market. You'll start to get rich again. The only thing is this is a quid pro quo whereby you allow U.S. troops to be stationed in your country and the U.S. troops are all over Japan, 11 different military bases, and they're still all over Germany. You allow us to occupy your countries and you always, always, always go along with us when it really matters. And so you function as a junior partner for us. So U.S. has unipolar domination with these satellite junior power capitalist countries and Russia, to the extent that it grows and got back on its feet and was not part of that imperialist club. And didn't the United States keep them from getting compensation after the war? I mean, the Soviet Union should have been compensated somewhat after the war also, but it didn't. Indeed. When you think about what actually happened at the end of World War II, you had the United States right. defeats, along with the Soviet Union and Britain, they defeat Nazi Germany. So immediately, the United States makes West Germany, which is under U.S. occupation, a friend of the United States and then integrates Germany, which is largely still, you know, the Nazis, with the exception of a handful of the top leaders who were on trial at Nuremberg. They're the judges. They're the cops. They're the scientists. The U.S. revives that sort of German ruling class structure after World War II, integrates it into NATO. Matter of fact, brings a thousand top Nazi scientists to the United States who developed NASA and the space program. That was Operation Paperclip. But what did it do to the Soviet Union? As you mentioned, Esther, instead of compensating or helping the Soviet Union rebuild after the Soviet Union took the brunt of the fighting and lost 27 million Soviet citizens and had their economy devastated, the U.S. immediately sanctioned the Soviet Union blockaded the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union couldn't buy one piece of technology from the West. And that went on for many, many decades. So instead of a helping hand, the, the U.S. declared the Soviet Union to be an existential enemy. And why? They did it because at that time, this is a different reason, but at that time, the Soviet Union was the center of a socialist camp and the socialist camp was spreading to the East and to the South. It was spreading to China and to Vietnam and to Korea and to Indonesia. It was spreading to the Middle East. There were big communist movements in Iran, in Iraq, in, in Lebanon. In Africa, the African anti-colonial movements were rising. And all of those movements turned towards the socialist camp for help. The South African Communist Party and the African National Congress the fighting the apartheid regime in South Africa you know, they sent their students for training in Moscow. They got guns from Moscow. So the U.S. saw the Soviet Union as the anchor of a global movement that was leaning in the direction of socialism, national liberation, and revolution. So again, the, the U.S. immediately turned its main ally or second main ally in the Soviet Union into its principal enemy, and then you would think after the Soviet Union collapsed, okay, well, the Russians are no longer, quote, anchoring the socialist camp because they're no longer led by a communist party. But again, the U.S. wasn't content even with that. The U.S. only wants Russia with a Yeltsin-like figure 
a, a vassal, sort of a neo-colonial stooge. And they hope if Ukraine can win the war, then Russia will perhaps be back on its knees again. And I think they're hoping for regime change in the Kremlin. Right. There are a lot of news stories. It was shared to me on Monday that Newsweek is putting out a story about Putin having brain cancer, that, you know, he's hospitalized, going to be hospitalized, and so is Xi of China. I was like, wow. Everybody's getting brain cancer. Right. And all the reports from corporate media is that, you know, Russia's demoralized, the troops are deserting, just (laughs) all the types of stories that you would expect to come from the United States and U.S. corporate media. But Brian, you found this clip from Meet the Press reports last week. They actually broadcast this simulated war game between China and the U.S. Oh, yeah. Do we have that clip? We have that clip. Oh, my God. So this is NBC. NBC, as a matter of entertainment, I guess, for the American people, doing how the U.S. will go to war with China in the year 2027, by the way. This is Meet the Press reports with Chuck Todd last Thursday, May 12th. As the White House continues its focus on providing Ukraine with the support it needs in its war against Russia, President Biden will turn his attention to another region today with its own security concerns at Southeast Asia. The president will host Southeast Asian leaders at the White House as the U.S. seeks to assure our allies in that region that it is committed to their security amid a looming threat from China. The timing of this meeting happens to come as our latest episode of Meet the Press Reports takes you inside something that's never been seen on camera, a full day war game exercise that imagines how America would react to a Chinese attempt at essentially invading and taking Taiwan. Here's a sneak peek. As you can see here on the map is a very large concentration of Chinese People's Liberation Army forces at potential ports of debarkation for an invasion. We want to focus on uh, a last-ditch effort to deter. This is a time to be sending the strongest possible message to Beijing, both privately and publicly, that there will be very severe costs if they actually go through with this. All right. So here we are, NBC. Let's do, for the American people, simulated war games between the United States and China if China dares invade Taiwan. Now, there's a number of points here, of course. Taiwan is a part of China. That would be like the United States invading Hawaii, right? Of course, the difference being Taiwan is much, much closer to the mainland of China than Hawaii is to the mainland of the United States. Taiwan is part of China. Taiwan's being part of China was recognized on three different occasions in 1972 with the Shanghai communique, reaffirmed again in the 1979 meeting, a second communique signed by Deng Xiaoping and Jimmy Carter when the United States officially recognized China and began normal relations with China. It was premised on the idea that Taiwan was, quote, part of China. And it's been part of China for centuries, as opposed to being annexed and like colonized like like Hawaii. Yeah, Hawaii was seized militarily and annexed in 1898. Yeah, and the group simulating the war game was the Center for New American Security. Michelle Flournoy, who was, you know, at first looked like she was going to be Secretary of Defense, not Lloyd Austin, a real hard, cold warrior. These are the people who are now making up the State Department. They're simulating war games with China. And the fact that NBC would advertise this as, hey, isn't this interesting, American people? We're going to show you on a game board how we can fight and win a war with China. Why are they doing that? Because they are actually preparing the population of the United States 
for war with Russia and China. There's no other reason for this to be done. And and like the lead in by Chuck Todd, uh, you know, like this has never been seen before on television. Well, that's, be that's because you'd never decided to do something like this before. It wasn't like some new event that just sprung on NBC. They decided to do it. But again, they're preparing the population, get ready for war with China. It's not going to be that bad. In fact, it'll be a little bit like a game. And this is what war propaganda is all about. Well, that just reminds me of your previous statements, just talking about the privileged class of people, you know, making these kinds of decisions, running the State Department, running the Defense Department for Biden. Because on, on the ground, I do something called the playground every now and then. It's not like a like a fully fledged segment, but it's just something I refer to sometimes because, you know, I grew up very working class in Philadelphia and you kind of learn as a kid, like on the playground about how to treat people. You learn how if you don't treat them right, you know, you might get your butt kicked. You might who your friend is, who the bully is. You know, I think that we should refer often, more often to some of the pieces you do on Thursday because the week before you did another piece for the real story and your guest talked about uh, the United States being a bully and picking on the smaller kid on the on the playground, which is, you know, Russia in terms of the lesser amount of money they put into their military. And he talked about, but sometimes the bully doesn't realize that the little kid has a handgun in their back pocket. <laughs> and I thought about that because these people like blinking and you just get the sense that they never learn how to treat people, you know, just to get along with people. The idea of fairness, the idea of empathy, the idea that, yeah, you can be a bully, yeah, you can push people around, but they don't even have the sense to know that, okay, when you're little, like you can kind of see that look in that person's eye. I've been not mess with that person, <laughs> you know, to, you know, and I just think that they just don't even have those instincts that many of us learn as just working class people growing up um, in terms of how you treat people, how you how you move through life, how you move through the world so that you can survive, too, and that you can look out for other people, too. And, and just all these instances that we're talking about, it just keeps coming through time and time again that. Yeah, they're not dealing with the reality and how most of us have to grow up and live. Yeah, so maybe we should describe this episode of the socialist program as the psychoanalytical <laughs> insight into war makers uh, because they, but I think it's real. I think we have to understand it, as you're saying, Esther, that, you know, these people really, they are their own community. They're very privileged. War is in many ways a game. Uh, if they win the war, they will be rewarded. Uh, frankly, their kids aren't going to do any bleeding, doing any of the suffering. Uh, all of their statements uh, are, you know, uh, by the way, I want to just bring this up. I want to find maybe for the, the Wednesday segment of the show sometime that clip where George W. Bush is on a, on a golf tee, like on the third tee, and he speaks directly to the cameras and he says, and I want to send a direct message to the Iranians that if you do X, Y, Z, you're going to be in trouble. And we take very seriously the lives of the Iraqi people, et cetera, et cetera. And then the cameras go off and then you see him take his golf club out. And he says, watch this drive. And of course, he's just acting. He's acting like a concerned, earnest, 
threatening politician, but he's on the damn golf course. He's at the country club. Think of any politician you've ever met, especially the wealthy ones and the ones who have been doing it for a while. This is a game. War is a game to the war makers and quote unquote politics is a game to the politicians. Except to the rest of us, politics is actually survival. It's about whether we actually have food on our table and a roof over our heads. Not only is it a game, it's a game that is showering them with money. That's right. Where was Lloyd Austin before he became Secretary of Defense? He was he's on the board of Raytheon. That's right. Just like Mark Esper was the I think the CEO of Raytheon. Like this revolving door, the generals, the colonels, the people who never get shot, who never who are never in combat. Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was the you know the commander of all U.S. Allied forces in World War II, he only shot his his gun once in his life, and that was to try to kill a mouse that was in the barracks. <laughs> I'm I'm telling you the truth. He never was in a single battle. But you know, it's funny because it's a, it may be a game, but if it's a game, it's a game that the Democrats are losing because we see right now in this political landscape that it's the right wing, it's the Republicans that are actually seizing kind of like the anti-war momentum in Congress that more of them are, you know, maybe it's, you know, all politics in the game you said. But when you when you hear people say that, wow, Rand Paul is to the left of AOC, you know, who is supporting the war, you know, you can see that even the progressives, so-called progressives in the Democratic Party are in trouble. They're in trouble in terms of understanding that more and more Americans are looking at this $40 billion on the one hand and looking at no COVID funding, no money for our schools on the other hand and saying, well, wait a minute, what is this? And just like you gave the example of Cuba, where there's no profit making in medicine, people know that there's profit making in war here. And so that's another reason why a lot more and more people are looking askance at this and saying, okay, is this just another trick or process for them to make money? And in the meanwhile, they're just leading us down the primrose path. Right. And that's a very, very legitimate, understandably skeptical position. I want to move Esther today in Washington, D.C., an important rally, one of many that are taking place all around the world to support Julian Assange. I mean, just think about it. All of the war makers and the people who sent the country to war in Iraq based on lies, hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis, thousands of U.S. soldiers who were either killed or had life-changing injuries, the people who, who are responsible, they're going around, they're making speeches, they're writing books. They're very, like Anthony Blinken and Victoria Newland, same class of people, very comfortable, very rich, ever richer, no accountability for, it's not just their mistakes, their war crimes and crimes against humanity. And Julian Assange, who's done so much, you know, to report what the war makers and the war criminals did, he's still languishing in jail. And if the U.S. gets its way, if the Biden administration gets its way, Biden and Trump, same here, get their way, Julian Assange will be sent back to the United States and and perhaps spend the rest of his life behind bars. Exactly. So tomorrow, May 18th, is the deadline for UK Home Secretary Priti Patel to make the final decision on the extradition of Julian Assange to the United States. And as you mentioned, press freedom advocates both here in D.C. and in London and probably many other places are holding 
simultaneous protests to demand that Patel and Boris Johnson comply with the Article 4 of the UK-US Treaty, which states that, quote, extradition shall not be granted if the offense for which extradition is requested is a political offense, end quote. And I actually didn't know about this particular clause, but that's something that people are hammering home in these protests today. And along with the idea that this is really a dangerous assault on the the free press, the First Amendment. And I I guess this was really ramped up during the Trump administration when, um, you know, charges were brought against Assange using the 1917 U.S. Espionage Act. And this was the first time that this law was used to target a publisher and for publishing facts at that, right? And uh, I always point out that Assange is not even a citizen of the U.S., so I don't even know how he can be charged here, but that gets into a whole nother matter. And his crime is for publishing evidence of U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan and Iraq, and that's including what has become known as the infamous collateral murder video, which documents the 2007 slaughter of Iraqi citizens and that uh, a journalist working for Reuters. So since that time, you know, Assange has been a target of the U.S. You know, there's been a whole chronology of him being arrested, being in the Ecuadorian embassy for several years, being arrested in 2019. And since then, he's been in this maximum security Belmarsh prison under horrific conditions in the UK. And but the movement hasn't stopped to try to free Assange. And at this point, I don't know if this is the final point to not have him extradited. I'll be out there with the folks at the Department of Justice today, also demanding on this end that Merrick Garland drop these charges against Assange and have him released because the UK has been doing all of this at the behest of the US. So this is just very important for all of us who care about, you know, freedom of the press, truth, being able to tell the truth about empire, about the lies of empire and, you know, I was trying to find the, the official name of this new commission or thing that Biden has started, the disinformation board or whatever it is. So this is happening at the same time when we know in this country we're dealing with the truth being under attack. You know, you have Biden having this new disinformation board under the Homeland Security, you know, and the people who are really raising the most Cain about this really are on the right again, right? They are talking about this being just the attempt of the Biden administration to especially control what is said about Ukraine, you know, right now. And you have, as we've talked about, all these attacks on from the right about telling the truth about American history. So I view the attack on Assange in the same vein. Because you have someone who basically used the technology, the ability for people to be whistleblowers and tell the truth about what this country is doing, not only in Iraq and Afghanistan, but all around the world. And he is the one in jail, not the people who led us in the war, not all the war criminals, not Bush, not Cheney, not not Wolfowitz, not none of those people. Right. And so it's just a, a very important fight, especially in this moment when so many people, so many of these elites are trying to basically control what we hear, what we can say, and basically what we know. 
All right, we're going to leave it there. We're going to be back tomorrow with Richard Wolf, a Marxist economist. We'll talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. Again, on Wednesday, we're going to stay with the topic of the danger of a larger war. We're going to do a deeper dive again on militarism, on the Ukraine war, on the danger of nuclear war. And on Wednesday, the following Wednesday, we invite all of you who are patrons, that's the people who subscribe to the show, the people who actually allow us to do this show, to join us. Send your questions in advance. Nicole, where can people send their questions? I'm gonna, you can ask me any question about anything, and that'll be on Wednesday again. This is part of our monthly seminar for patrons. Yeah, if you go to patreon.com slash the socialist program, you can subscribe there and $5 a month or more. And, you know, there's tiers up to 100 or $250 a month that can really help our show out. Once you subscribe, you can message us on Patreon and we'll take your questions and answer them on the seminar. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.